Good evening. Good to be back after a brief, rather brief absence. So tonight we're going to uh, look at chapter 11. The chapter that's uh, titled Beholding the Precious Stupa. And we don't have the opportunity to experience stupas in this part of the world, really. But uh, the three weeks I spent in China over 15 years ago now, uh, that was a pretty regular occurrence. Temple centers there typically had a stupa. Uh, often venerating the founder of that particular temple, or at least uh, one of the uh, most prominent abbots in the history of that temple. So... The <laughs> that's just uh, a quick uh, down a dirty intro to the stupa itself and its importance in uh, in Asian Buddhist practice. And they're often the repository for uh, ashes. Uh, for instance, if I'm remembering correctly, uh, when, when I uh, visited uh, Tiantong uh, in Hangzhou, China, uh, that was the temple where Dogen found his teacher, uh, Ru Jing. So Ru Jing's ashes are contained within that stupa. So we did our prostrations, venerating him. And that's what kind of magically appears here in chapter 11. And I know on its surface, this seems like more of that supernatural stuff that we've encountered before. So we're familiar with this uh, poetic device. Uh, so what I hope to do this evening is just to kind of uh, fill in, fill this, uh, this poetic device with the Dharma teaching mm -hmm. that it's meant to convey. Because I, I know at least from my standpoint, when I was able to come to a, a, a deeper understanding of what was being expressed here, it took on uh, much more meaning than it initially did. Because I'm like most people, I want to brush, just kind of glance through these supernatural things and let's get to the meteor stuff. I don't need, need all this. But actually, uh, the, what's being conveyed here 
And the vehicle that's used for it, I came to appreciate more and more with the passage of time. So I'll try and, uh, and, and uh, share that experience of mine with you and in the hope that maybe it'll help help this uh, be a bit more meaningful uh, to you as a result. So the first thing I wanted to speak to is the fact that this tower or stupa, its appearance is springing from the ground. And that's an important point within the Lotus Sutra. We had things springing from the ground earlier in the text too, in the earliest chapters, as opposed to you know, dropping down from heaven in religious texts. That's kind of what we would expect, I think. That's our programming, I suppose, is we expect these uh, uh, divine messages, messages, messengers to be coming from up there, not from, from, from the earth itself. This is kind of setting the stage for the deeper meaning being conveyed here and why I described it in my email this past Tuesday. I was a day late, sorry about that. <laughs> but, uh, But the reason why I consider it to be so pivotal is because it really brings us to this uh, core point of, of Buddhist teaching about the, the relative, the conventional, or the ultimate, the absolute. So the fact that this is coming up from the ground is already pointing to the fact of in the lingo of the Heart Sutra, we call that which is form is emptiness and that which is emptiness is form. That we're not escaping off into some different realm, even though the teaching being conveyed here is like the core meaning of Buddhism, but rather it's right here under our feet. That's the significance of it, of the stupa springing from the ground in order to, then to stand in the sky. And the next 10 or so chapters are going to be airborne, you might say. So let's, we're going to remain in the sky for a while, but always keep in mind that this came out of the ground. That's very important. And when it appears, uh, a great voice comes from within it, announcing how wonderful it is that Shakyamuni is preaching for this great assembly, all these bodhisattvas and all these Buddhas. He's preaching the Lotus Sutra, a teaching founded on knowledge of the truth that all beings alike have the Buddha nature. This is 
certainly a new teaching in the context of, of the sutras that preceded it. This is not something that you would find in the earliest sutras of the Theravadan tradition. This teaching that all living beings have the Buddha nature. And it teaches everyone the way of the Bodhisattva. Again, this is a new concept, a new term, Bodhisattva. Someone whose uh, objective is not personal enlightenment, but rather it's for the enlightenment of all beings. So these are the core teachings here. And this is why this stupa is suddenly appeared. So the Buddha explains, because everybody, as you can well imagine, is pretty awestruck. It's like, what, what is this? <laughs> we haven't seen anything like this before. And actually, this is out of the norm for the earlier sutras as well. They weren't really much for these special effects. So they were, if, if you've read any of them from the, uh, the long discourses of the Buddha or the middle length discourses of the Buddha or the Dhammapada or several of the other collections of his teachings, you know, they're pretty straightforward. So what is going on here? And the Buddha says that inside this stupa is the whole body of the Tathagata. The Tathagata being another term often used in place of the Buddha. Uh, literally, it means thus come one, or also actually thus gone one. Thus come, thus gone. And this sense of thusness, suchness. You know, we, we've had some uh, discussions on this in the past. Also getting to the core of Buddhist teaching. So this whole body of the Tathagata basically means that what's inside is the perfect truth. And that would, that would be no other than the perfect body of the Tathagata. So very, now this imagery starts to, to become much richer, I think. And this then, putting it in the context of what's preceded it in the Lotus Sutra, this is a teaching that brings together all truths. And in the bringing together of those all truths, we have the one vehicle that's, that's uh, emphasized so strongly in the beginning chapters of the Lotus. Bringing together all these separate truths. 
and the separate truths can be seen as uh, corollaries to the tactful means that were also so important in the earlier chapters of the Lotus Sutra. They were not about addressing the ultimate. The parable of the burning house was about their suffering and how do we respond to it. And it wasn't about conveying teachings about the ultimate nature of all things, about emptiness. It was about getting them out of the burning house. With the chariots as as the tool that was used to accomplish that. Or the parable of the magic city and the the role of uh, the great uh, tranquility that was provided by their arrival at the magic city, often seen as being the point of Buddhist practice. Well, that's nirvana. That's what we're that's what we're looking for. That's the promised land. But again, that was just a skillful means to keep people on this journey moving along. They clearly needed some R&R. So lo and behold, it, it appeared. Again, it wasn't about teaching these ultimate truths. But the stupa arises out of the earth at this point because the teaching is now going to turn to that. It's going to turn to the way of the Bodhisattva, to the ultimate truth that makes up all of us. That's what's being conveyed by this teaching that all beings have Buddha nature. We all have this perfect truth within us. So the, the figure that's inside of this uh, stupa is Tathagata Abundant Treasures. That's the voice that, that uh, those in attendance heard. And Abundant treasures is pointing to literally, it means a presence of many precious things, abundant treasures. So when we have had occasion to talk about this in the Dharma teachings that take place here, 
we describe it in terms of the sacredness of all things. It's kind of the Western way of describing all things having Buddha nature. This is abundant treasures. So the awakened person awakens to that fact that we live in this realm of abundant treasures where all is sacred. We are in this great treasury where all the true wealth of our realm is out there all around us. But like the parable of the hidden jewel, that we're not aware of. That's the reason for teaching the Dharma, is to awaken people to its existence. Even though we've always had ready access to it, it's all around us. And yet, we struggle with dukkha constantly. So this, this way of the Bodhisattva then is based upon the truth of Buddha nature, that it is all around us. And if we need to utilize skillful means in our work to be, be of assistance to other beings, then there are so many resources readily available. Our skillfulness in using them is dependent to a considerable degree upon our recognition of these riches that are all around us. If we haven't seen that, we're going to be pretty challenged in terms of how we can respond. So in this sense, the, our practice in the world involves the discovery and development of Buddha nature that's present in all beings. So a little more information about this Tathagata Abundant Treasures. While still a Bodhisattva back in the day, this Buddha had made a vow that upon becoming a Buddha, he would go wherever the lotus was being preached. I thought that's a pretty wonderful vow. He wanted, he would go there to bear witness to its truth and to give praise. 
kind of like the Lotus Sutra cheerleader. To make sure everybody is really paying attention and recognizing, appreciating how profound this teaching is. So that's a nice gig. I like that. <laughs> we, we, Hollywood really should be uh, thinking of doing a cinematic production of the Lotus Sutra. I mean, this is, whoa. <laughs> Come Oscar time. I think there'd be quite a few awards <laughs> handed out for sure. Just as a skillful means, you know. <laughs> so, uh, and, and the next thing I wanted to point out about this uh, Tathagata abundant treasures is that it it really coincides nicely with another Buddhist teaching that we've looked at here with the three bodies of Buddha, Dharmakaya, Sambhogakaya, and Nirmanakaya. <clears throat> the Tathagata abundant treasures is clearly the Dharmakaya. This is the pure Dharma. The whole, this is what was, uh, I had, described earlier is this pure body of the Tathagata. So th this is one of the benefits of studying various texts is, uh, you know, I find that it, it starts to shed a lot more light on other teachings that I thought I had some understanding of, but then as we progress along in, in uh, Dharma study, uh, through examples such as this, we can, it can really deepen our understanding of these other teachings as well. So this, this very act of erecting a great stupa means to make manifest the Buddha nature of all things. That's uh, a powerful way of actually showing it, demonstrating it, symbolizing it. Of conveying this perfect truth. And to see that the Lotus Sutra, one of its functions here, is the bringing together of all truths and showing thereby the complete form of truth, which again is nothing other than this perfect body of the Tathagata. So we're back to this one vehicle. And another rich, bit of symbolism that takes place here 
is that uh, Tathagata abundant treasures uh, moves over to the side to make room for Shakyamuni. Shakyamuni is clearly from the conventional realm. You know, he was born, he will die, uh, and he's going to go up there and enter the stupa with uh, Tathagata abundant treasures. Uh, beautiful depiction of this coming together of form and emptiness, emptiness and form, that now they're both up there together in this stupa for the teaching of the Lotus Sutra. And this is probably a good place to to hearken back to a point that was made very in the very beginning, uh, which I, I, I recall Joe kind of joined with me in the consternation early on that we were kept waiting for the teaching of the Lotus Sutra. <laughs> Got through chapter after chapter and go, well, when, when are they going to get to it? Well, with this chapter, I can remember it's like, my patience has been rewarded. <laughs> Tathagata abundant treasures has appeared, the stupas that come up from the ground, and now, now it's going to be taught. <laughs> well, don't jump, don't. Uh... <laughs> but I figured, I think we're getting there. <laughs> it sure seemed like the stage was being. <laughs> So this, and again, this also kind of fills out uh, some of the, uh, the, the comments that I shared with you earlier about the, the, the role of all this supernatural stuff. And it's certainly at, at work here because the, Shakyamuni is a being of this world, we'll call it the Saha world, uh, te giving teachings for the beings of this realm. And so from a more cosmological viewpoint, we can see that as just being one particular conveyance of, of truth. But with this grander stage that's been set and with the appearance of Tathagata abundant treasures, I, th I, th I find it uh, uh, is an excellent way of conveying this sense of the ultimate, the one vehicle encompassing all of these other vehicles. And of course, as uh, one of the commentaries expresses it, <clears throat> only when someone explains this truth so that it moves the hearts and minds of people, does it become something that may rescue the human world. 
Otherwise, you know, it's just abstract stuff. So to really touch people in a way that speaks to their whole body, heart, mind is an important aspect of the Dharma. So it's, it's not uh, neglecting our rash, rational side, and it shouldn't. But it's going beyond just that. We need to be completely engaged in it. So for me, as I'm preparing this talk on Buddhism and environmentalism, you know, I can relate to it quite well because so many people get the issue of environmentalism rationally, conceptually, but if, if it doesn't really hit them, they're probably not going to, their practice, the way they live their lives, probably isn't going to be impacted that much. So our intellect needs to be engaged. It has an important role to play. But if, it's, if it remains there, just insufficient because that doesn't make up our entire being. That's not what we are. Now, maybe we're evolving in that direction with advances in AI and emerging. Maybe that's what we will become. I don't know, but we're not there yet. Hopefully we'll never be, in my humble opinion. I'm not signing up for it. So, so Shakyamuni Buddha, and this is kind of looking ahead to a, a future chapter in the Lotus Sutra. Uh, chapter 16, which is titled Revelation of the Eternal Life of the Tathagata. Again, referencing Dharmakaya in the language of the three bodies of the Buddha. But Shakyamuni Buddha by his elevation to the stupa, joining with Tathagata Abundant Treasures, it's signifying he's the everlasting Buddha. So there are myriad everlasting Buddhas, all participating in that pure body of the Tathagata, the ultimate truth. Again, this merging of difference and unity. And hopefully, if nothing else, this sutra conveys pretty strongly the fact that there wasn't just a single Buddha. Big difference from the Theravadan tradition. It's conveying the fact that there are Buddhas all over the place. More than our minds could even conceive. 
And that's what it wants to convey. Very, very, very important. So our, our human nature of, of being these uh, beings that, uh, that are here ever so briefly is none other than the ultimate substance. That's why samsaric realm and nirvana are one and the same. There is no difference. Again, form, emptiness, emptiness, form. That's what's being conveyed here when you get right down to it. So up to this point, uh, hearkening back to the the symbolism of, of uh, the stupa rising up into the sky. Up to this point, the location uh, for the sermon has been Vulture Peak, which is where uh, so many of the Buddhist talks were given as they were uh, re related in the early Theravada Sutras. So Vulture Peak is well, well known as a place where the Buddha would, would teach from. But with this, it shifts. It's no longer earth-based. It's now risen, transcended that. So we are, at this point in the sutra now, entering into the ultimate universal realm. And this is how, using the, uh, the cinematic theatrical device, that's being conveyed. Maybe we can appreciate that even more in our time because we're used to that kind of conveyance. <laughs> it's like, oh yeah, I get that. Pretty skillful. Who's the director? <laughs> and then in the last few chapters, we'll come back down to the earth again, which is entirely appropriate and in keeping with the basic message of the Lotus Sutra. Again, kind of reminiscent of the ox herding pictures, which we've pointed out a time or two. Now from the eighth picture, emptiness of all things, to the tenth picture, and re-entering the marketplace, getting our hands dirty, meeting people where they are, rather than hollering down to him, why don't you come on up here? No. Meet them where they are. And that's the, the way of the Bodhisattva. So this coming together of, of the Buddha of, of our time and our world with the universal Buddha. 
one and the same. And the one vehicle holding together all these individual truths, all these uses of skillful means, but all in service to the one vehicle because it all comes together. And the fact that the Dharma has to be rooted in our lives here and now, that it can't just exist in some uh, separate, pure realm in order to be of any use to, to me or anybody. This is what makes it a living, breathing Dharma teaching, is that it is right here. But the fact that it is right here doesn't mean that it's something separate from, from the universal side of things, but rather that the universal side of things can only be manifest right here. It's our running off seeking for it under some purer conditions that's diluted. That's where our big mistake happens, that we don't find it right here. So this is very affirming of our lives, And we've had occasion as well to talk over the uh, these recent years about the importance of, of being genuine, being authentic. And this helps point to, to how that becomes kind of integral to our practice. Because if we recognize this, this coming together of the particulars of my life and the universal, then I can I can be pretty comfortable being genuine. Whereas if I think, you know, I'm, well, I'm lacking that, then I'm going to be kind of hesitant. So really important teaching being conveyed here that can really change the nature of our practice. And the chapter ends the way I will end my talk here. Although I have one little jazz thing to throw in. Mm -hmm. But before that, <laughs> just sticking to the Lotus Sutra, the chapter ends with an appeal to those who can take up the difficult task of teaching the Dharma after the Buddha's extinction, after 
we lost Shakyamuni. So to take up this difficult task of teaching and to make a great vow to do so. To share our practice. In a time that certainly needs it. Needs it desperately. So, in a related vein, really, once a young pianist asked Herbie Hancock, how should I develop my touch? You know, how important touch is in playing the piano, unless it's electric piano. But we're talking a real, nice Steinway grand piano. How should I develop my touch? And Hancock responded, develop your life, develop your touch, develop your life. And the person telling this story was a pianist I saw in Knoxville, Vijay Iyer, who I have a huge admiration for. He said, this is because we hear the sound of the entire body in piano music. And I think the same could be said about hearing the sound of the entire body, heart, and mind in Zen practice. So practice really is developing your life. How to develop your your Zen touch develop your life. All right. Just one Zen story tonight. I've restrained myself. <laughs> so let me Over there in my search, sometimes. 
Okay. Success. We're open for questions. Springboarded again. I have one quick clarification. Uh -huh. Is is the term Chapavita and the um, the ultimate vehicle Samanas or the they they are, but uh, uh, I think is a skillful means. It's probably effective to look at Tathagata in terms of its etymology, thus come one, because it really helps to, at least I found this to be the case for myself, dropping me into the truth of suchness in this very moment, that in this moment, everything there is no self. So Tathagata also includes no self. Of course, the, the, the universal vehicle, that's also containing that. But that's why I, I said, just as a skillful means, I've always found Tathagata to be a particularly useful term for leading me to, to a deeper understanding of suchness. Whereas it can kind of get lost almost in, in the universal vehicle because it's so universal. <laughs> but thus come one is, is pointing to the Buddha and, and the Buddha's enlightenment. Well, okay. <laughs> so if I'm in suchness, and this is what Dogen was saying, you know, you want to practice such if you want to practice suchness, uh, you know, right here, right now, because it's right. That's that's just what suchness is. Is what's right here. So stop talking about it. You know, just be with it. That's all I say. Jeff. Yeah, I would like to, uh, at the end, it, they really stressed the difficulty. I mean, like it was repeated like a dozen times, like you can move mountains easier than teaching after he's, the Buddha's extinct. What was being stressed with uh, extreme uh, difficulty? What, what was being pointed out? Well, I think uh, it's, my sense of it is it's kind of, uh, in a sense, reflective of how uh, people might kind of view that task. I mean, and again, I can I can relate to that. I mean, I never saw myself teaching, and when when I first get uh, the invitations to do so. Uh, 
I, I frankly did them because I didn't want to seem like somebody that would just turn and run, but I didn't really want to do it, you know? <laughs> so, I mean, I saw it as a difficult task in other words. And it took a fair amount of time before I got comfortable with it. I mean, I remember back at the Queen Buddhist Temple, one of the people that would uh, was a member of the temple, aside from our group, but he'd come on Saturday mornings with us. And he was also like the head of adult education at West Shore Unitarian Church. And he came up to me one Saturday asking if I'd do a talk there. And, you know, I wanted to say, no, man. <laughs> do that stuff <laughs> but of course I couldn't do that <laughs> so I said yeah I could do that <laughs> even though it, uh, that's not what I wanted to say <laughs> so I kind of force myself so that's the way I take the difficult task that's how I can relate to it and it's kind of uh just to be honest about it, but yet to, to kind of have that element of faith as well. So at least I was far enough in the practice, even though I didn't want to do it. But I figured, well, okay, you know, it's not going to kill me, right? I don't think. It was burning out. So, that's my take on it. Yeah. I had a, a comment on that as well. With, uh, <clears throat> I mean, I agree with it being hard. And the first time I gave a talk, I thought, oh, I'm going to write five bullet points. You know, I'm just going to talk about each of those five. And oh, 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 and out of time. And I'll be back and forth. So I said, I kind of went to my first bullet point, and nobody said a word. And then the next one, and then nobody said a word. And in five minutes, I was done. Yeah. And uh, I couldn't think of a damn thing to say. <laughs> and uh, so I overprepared. And then I was at it. I didn't have three pages. So right. Right. But uh, I also thought a lot of it is how do you teach a teaching that as soon as you put it into words, you can follow it. And it can't be put into words. So I, and then it's so hard because it takes so much practice or, you know, effort. Mm -hmm. um, and then, what, and then if you were to even make any progress to try to communicate that to somebody else in a way that makes sense without the file, that makes it almost impossible. But I always saw that side of it as well. Yeah. And then on your the flat, the closing comment about the uh, your jazz playing piano brought to mind the, the opposite side of that is Bukowski. I'm a big fan of Bukowski. He has a book, I think, that's titled uh, Play the piano like a percussion instrument until your fingers bleed. I want that popping. That's how just comments it. Like it's like your hair is on fire. Yeah. There you go. Mike. Yeah, I, I guess my question is just, and, and I mean, I'm just loving, like, actually connecting with the sutra, because 
all the supernatural stuff, I guess I kind of let it get in my way. Um, but in terms of for all this sort of, for lack of a, a better word, uh, s- separating from orthodoxy to this point, was the Lotus Sutra considered kind of controversial or heresy in some quarters in a way? Because as you describe it, it sounds like a pretty radical departure here. Yeah. And uh, I mean, Mahayana texts in general uh, <clears throat> kind of s- seem to have that kind of edge to them. Uh, maybe not so much uh, texts like the Diamond Sutra simply because they're so dry. But if you have characters like like another one that comes to mind would be the Vamala Kirti mm-hmm. Sutra that I could see uh, uh, kind of making fun of of the uh, the most important disciples of of the Buddha. Yes, people like Shariputra. Shariputra is afraid to go no. see Vamala Kirti. It's, uh, yeah, there's always what, what we would term like Dharma combat, and he would just cut them to, to ribbons. <laughs> so there was this, this way of presenting the superiority of the Mahayana that, uh, uh, that a number of other sutras, not all of them, but, but the, the Lotus, in that sense, probably is less controversial than the Vamala Kirti, which, you know, was, was pretty much, uh, you know, didn't hold back at all in terms of their feeling about the superiority. And I think the Lotus is, is far more diplomatic about that. The way they introduce in the early chapters, the one vehicle uh, that includes the, the Shravaka, as opposed to just being outright, you know, now that the, the Mahayana is here, how could you practice that? You know, I mean, that's clearly so inferior. So I, th- I think it's an important point, though, about how some of the Mahayana texts could be a lot more polemical in nature that way. Gotcha. Thank you. Going once, going twice. <laughs> In the back page of your chapbook, you have the philosophical bow. I bow to myself and to each of you to commit myself daily to the healing of our world and the welfare of all beings to live on earth more lightly and less violently in the food, products, and energy I consume to draw strength and guidance from the living earth, the ancestors, the future generations, and my brothers and sisters of all species to support others in our work for the world and to ask for help when I need it, to pursue a daily practice that clarifies my mind, strengthens my heart, and supports me in observing these vows. 